0: Welcome to System Change Made Simple. You've probably often heard the slogan, System Change, Not Climate Change. I like that slogan, and and this podcast series explores that idea. How could we change the system? And you can talk about a number of different systems, you know, like capitalism, patriarchy, racism, and so on. So how are all these connected? Where do they come from in the first place? Uh, And what can we do to change this and actually move to something preferable? I'm a sociologist. My name's Terry Lay. I'm also an environmentalist. And so this podcast series is about how we could make a fresh start and get rid of these systems that are oppressing us and destroying the planet. So get a hot drink and get comfortable. This is System Change Made Simple. Okay, so this is the second series in System Change Made Simple. In this series, I'm going to be talking about patriarchy. I'm going to be looking at what patriarchy is this particular podcast that you're now listening to is on that topic and then also talk about how it's maybe cross-cultural or not as the case may be and we'll discuss that and also to talk about the various aspects of the feminist movement as it's developed since the 19th century and then talk about how it is that patriarchy and class society interact with each other and what's a particular form this takes in capitalist societies. So I hope you enjoy this second series. I'm sure you may find it interesting. What is patriarchy? I'm going to say that patriarchy is actually cross-cultural and trans-historical, meaning that it's occurred in different periods of history and it's also in different types of cultures, different locations in class and so on. It's a regime of male power and exploitation of women. It's an inequality. It's socially constructed to an extent in the sense that men Choose to create patriarchy and construct it politically by various actions, whether they're intended, conscious, or not, but certainly they act to create patriarchy. In that sense, it's socially constructed. It's also socially constructed in the sense that it's really different in different societies. So we could probably talk about patriarchies rather than patriarchy, but we use the term patriarchy to reflect the fact that it's a cross cultural phenomenon and that it has similar features in different type of societies, <clears throat> but as well as being socially constructed, patriarchy is also something which depends upon the biological differences between the sexes. It couldn't exist without them and it and constantly and, and ever-endingly depends upon. That's why patriarchy has been recreated in such different situations. <clears throat> it's pretty well universal in human societies. I mean, it's debatable how universal it is, but it's certainly extremely common. In which case, you have to ask yourself the question, why is it so common, even if it's not totally universal? So I'm happy to leave that question up in the air. I think it's important to acknowledge how common it is. I think patriarchy is not inevitable at the present time. I think it can be defeated and is being rolled back as we speak, and it has been since the second half of the 19th century. And that rollback depends upon certain technological capacities come with modernity and industrialism. So, this is all pretty controversial stuff, really. I mean, okay, let me just talk about some of the views of patriarchy, which I think are completely mistaken. Okay, so one, the conservative line is there's no such thing as patriarchy. In other words, men don't have power, women choose a different role from men, and these roles are complementary. I just think that's completely wrong. Another conservative theory is that differences. in gender roles come from differences in temperament and intellect, you know, like that women are not good at maths or men are more aggressive or something like that. I also think that's completely wrong. The evidence doesn't really back it up, basically. <clears throat> Another kind of view much more common on the left at the moment is that gender is socially constructed completely without any reference to biology, like totally independently of biology. Also think that's wrong. Another view on the left, which is very common, is that patriarchy comes out of class society. It's all connected would be the classic term used to announce this point of view. You know, like capitalism, patriarchy, racism, environmental destruction, they're all part of the same package. No, they're not actually. Patriarchy is pretty well an independent phenomenon which grafts onto and becomes part of various other social structures and social regimes. Another view that I would like to challenge on the left is that feminism or the critique of patriarchy is relevant to Western culture, but not really uh, applicable to other cultures which don't have liberalism or a feminist movement or the Enlightenment or whatever. The, the concern with gender is something which is specific to Western society. And so consequently, the term patriarchy is inapplicable in other societies. I'm going to argue that's not the case and explain why. And finally, the idea that feminism is not about equality. So talking about patriarchy as a form of inequality between men and women it must be mistaken because who wants to be like men? Why would women want to be like men? I think the term inequality doesn't imply sameness. You know, it doesn't imply that the goal is sameness. It just acquies, applies that the goal is an equality of power, a, a lack of exploitation and, and, and so forth. All right, so now I'm going to talk about the idea that patriarchy is a kind of exploitation. What does that mean? Okay, so my viewpoint, and likely you won't find this in many sociology textbooks, is that the term exploitation has a meaning because we presuppose various innate basic drives of human nature. And in that context, we say that exploitation is this. Exploitation is what happened when one person is getting their basic desires met at the expense of another person. That other person is not getting their basic desires met. What they're doing for the first person is something which frustrates their basic desires. So it's like... An unfair transaction. One party is getting, you know, like using philosopher's language, A is getting more out of this transaction than B is getting out of it. B is getting frustrations of their basic desires and A is getting their basic desires satisfied. Okay, to back that up, what are the drives of human nature in terms of which patriarchal exploitation can be understood? Okay, so hunger, the desire for food, physical comfort and health is the second one, social pleasures, loving, you know, the pleasure of giving social pleasure to other people, loving people and being loved, status appreciation, you know, like people think what you're doing is important or useful or whatever, good company, you know, like having fun with friends and so on. These are social pleasures, sexual desires. And I won't go into that. Creativity, exciting and interesting work, the the excitement of, you know, the adrenaline rush that comes with doing something exciting and so on, as well as the pleasure of making a great work of art or whatever. Autonomy, getting what you want, you know, like in any particular time, I take that as a basic desire of human nature. And of course, it inflects other things. So, you know, like my favourite example is what's a good meal? Okay, so A good meal satisfies the basic desire of hunger but it also in terms of autonomy has to be the kind of meal that you actually want and that's very socially located what kind of meal is regarded as satisfying now you may say that it's really implausible to define inequality in terms of this list of desires like for example how could you compare the pleasure of taking a walk in the park with the pleasure of playing a computer game you know you'd obviously have different people saying one thing and saying the other about that example and so if patriarchy is to be defined as exploitation men exploit women meaning that men get more of their basic desires than women how can you possibly analyze that because you know desires are very different and variable the expression of all these six key desires is massively unique and culturally constructed and unique to individual people and so on. And how are you going to make this comparison? My answer to that is just this. First of all, I think that's what the term exploitation implies, even if it's very hard to nail down particular cases. So we can't escape from doing this. That might be my first point. My second point would be this, that when we look at structures of exploitation in society that we're interested in, like racism, gender inequality, social class and so on these it's not that hard and the reason it's not that hard is that the ruling group gets more of their desires met across this whole panel of of basic human desires and in a whole lot of different ways and instances which we can name and so it doesn't become that hard it may be impossible to quantify this exploitation but it's certainly not that hard to describe it And, and that's what i'll be doing in the next section So I'm going to start off with Anne Oakley, The Sociology of housework. Like it's the obvious thing for a sociologist to do is to look at a white Western metropole country like London, you know, da-da-da, and a white anthropologist who happens to be a feminist sociologist or whatever, Anne Oakley. And all I'd say about that is, yeah, that's a fair comment, but I will be talking about other societies and cultures later on. So she's looking at the discontents of 40 London housewives and so she interviews these 40 London housewives. So these are people whose husbands are working like they've got full-time jobs. This is in the seventies before neoliberalism really kind of went kabang. and she's interviewing them about what they're doing is they're staying home. And she finds out that they're working like a 70 hour week, you know, like compared to their husbands who are working maybe a 40 hour week with another, like throw in another 10 hours for transport or something like that. So they're working longer hours than their husbands. And they've got children under five, you know, like the worst, you know, the most difficult. And also, of course, the term housewives implies that they're living in separated family residential units pretty well with nobody else there. You know, they're not living in extended families with grandparents and lots of kiddies running about and brothers and sisters all living under the same roof or anything like that. So they're fairly isolated. Okay, so let's look at this situation. So the first thing is that that in terms of creativity, they find housework boring and monotonous and, and long hours of work. Like, for example, they talk about how boring ironing is or how, you know, you clean a room and then everyone comes home and the next day you've got to just bloody clean it again. And it's just terrible. And a lot of these London housewives, as you'd expect, would have had earlier jobs. And, some, and there's a, a good range of classes. So some have had work, even what, like factory jobs, which are mind-numbingly boring. And they say even these jobs are more interesting than doing housework. And they're obviously comparing and they do compare their own work with that of their husbands. And they say, OK, their husbands, it's no picnic being employed, you know, like in, in the various jobs that their husbands have got. But it's a slightly more interesting work than what they're doing this is this would be their point in terms of sociability all right so they talk about the low status of house, the housewife they say that people think of them as a cabbage when they're a housewife and they talk about the fact that the, the husbands don't appreciate their work so this is a failure of social pleasures in the sense they're not getting appreciation for the work they you know he comes home he doesn't even notice what i've done da, 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 you know that kind of thing And loneliness is a huge thing. They go, ah, you know, it's really exciting when the milkman comes around, you know, da, 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 da. Or, you know, I I, I spend the whole day at home by myself. It's massive. I feel really lonely. And it's such a, you know, I'm so excited when my husband gets back from work or, or, you know, like every week I might go and see my mother in another suburb or something like that. You know, like this is a real pleasure and so on. So it's very lonely. The social pleasures are diminished. Autonomy. Well, clearly one of the advantages in terms of autonomy in housework is that you choose your own work. But what Oakley points out and what they balance this against is the sense of particular tasks of housework feel obligatory. You know, like you have to make the bed. You know, if the kitchen is covered in sand and dog hair, you have to vacuum it. And they feel this as a sort of obligation. This is obligatory work. They don't find it unconstrained. Oh, you might do so. You might not. No, far from that. If the baby's nappy needs changing, God, Jesus, you have to do that, you know, and so on and so forth. Okay. It's unpaid work. I mean, this is like the elephant in the room, obviously, because what their husbands are doing in their jobs is getting paid for their work. Whereas the wives are not getting paid. Now, you could say the family is sharing their income and so on, but from a sort of moral point of view and a legal point of view, the husband feels like I've worked and I've earned my money, dah, 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 it's my money. And there are a lot of it cases where this is really obvious in the way households behave, you know, like the husband goes out and buys toys of like a huge like a family that I know about the husband goes out and buys a huge boat that he hardly ever uses and, and, and the, and the wife has nothing like that, you know, like an old bomb car or whatever. So this autonomy is real, and it's also real in the sense if the couple splits up, women are much more likely to be to be dependent, you know, like you know, well, you know, to be on the doll or, or welfare or you know, supporting mother's benefit or not to have a job that pays as well as their husbands. I mean, all of these things are relevant. It's they're constrained in their work by the fact that they've got kiddies and and da 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 all that. So, so the, what, why is this autonomy? Well, basically what money does is it gives you autonomy. It means you can pay money to get what you want at any particular time because you're accessing the, the labour of other people who've worked and, then, and those goods have been put on the market and you're buying them. So in terms of human desires, money provides autonomy. Now, that's what you don't get with housework and we can look at this in terms of the life course that women are getting, like in in the statistics that I've looked at most recently, it's like something like between 45 and 50% of men's earnings over the whole life course, you know? So if we take into account retirement, superannuation, social welfare checks, um, Da da, da. You know, like men's work, women's times out of the labor force, women's lower pay than men. We put all this together and add all of this up. Women are earning 45% of men's total earnings in their life course. Now, that is a massive dependence. And there's no way to get around that. And it's reflected in all sorts of ways in, in men's power in the sense that they have power over women because of this extra autonomy they're getting through their wages. And one of the other things that uh, the Oakley's interviewees talk about is the, uh, the authority and power of the husbands to make decisions. So the husbands are likely to come home and complain if the housework isn't up to their standards. they you know, like again from my own family stuff and friends and so on, you know, a, a husband who, who, who gets the shits with the dinner and throws the plate of food at the wall, you know, like that's an appalling thing to do. But but basically, it's a complaint about housework. And, and it's an expression of rage and anger. And it's somewhat terrifying, you know, like it's scary. And so in terms of physical well being and comfort, it's basically scary. In terms of autonomy, it means that the, the wife's cooking is, you know, isn't she has to adjust her standards to what the husband wants. In terms of status and appreciation, when you can't think of anything worse and so on and so forth. But then it's also in more consensual decisions, like in Oakley's research, a lot of the, quite a few of the women talked about the fact that their husbands were effectively deciding how many children the couple would have. Oh, he thinks we shouldn't have any more, so I'm not having any more, even though I'd like another one, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or he thinks we should have five and I only want two, you know, all of that. Okay. So... So this is a massively convincing picture of inequality and exploitation in the sense that the work that the housewives are doing, like their 70 hours of work, is contributing to the kind of lifestyle that the couple can live together, to the husband's lifestyle, and that he's he's not doing an equivalent of, of amount of work for her. Even if you take his, his paid job as work, he's not working as many hours of that. And in the paid work that he's doing, he's getting more pleasures out of that and she's getting out of the housework. So there's an inequality of pleasures here. The wife's giving the husband more and then she's getting back. She's getting lots of frustrations compared with the pleasures he's getting out of her housework and stuff. Now, you, let's go back to the sort of old conservative thing. Ah, women want their role and so on. Is this, yeah, is the role of the housewife wanted? Well, what Oakley found was that like, you know, a huge percentage of the women thought that the role of the wife Was to do to become a housewife and to do this housework. They wouldn't want their husbands doing it, and they'd say things like, "I don't like a man to be henpecked," and and I think a man should be a man, you know, like and all this kind of stuff. And it's like this was in the seventies, but I'm sure it's not that different. I mean, it might the language might be a bit different, but the sentiments probably not entirely changed. So in, in that sense. It's fair to say, as conservatives do, that women want their role. They want the housewife role. And like in the terms of, of sociology, we could see this as an ideology, you know, like in other words, the powerless group is, 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 is having various ideas and so on, which actually support the continued power of the ruling group. And there are various ways in which this comes about, which I won't talk about. But let's look at other aspects of autonomy here, which kind of balance that, that issue. Yeah, it provides the the lack of autonomy which i which i've talked about in housework the sense of having to do housework and the lack of autonomy in the relationship that comes about through the housewife role in comparison to the role of paid work the husband's wage and so on the husband the housewife provides services for a husband who endures less frustration of his desires in his services for the family. There's a difference in hours of obligatory work in the sense that, especially with, with kids under five, women are, really are doing a 70-hour work working week compared with men's work. And, and, of course, the main thing is the difference of autonomy achieved through the wage. The husband's got a huge amount of autonomy compared with the wageless housewife. And it amounts to an exploitation of the overall balance of transactions, autonomy being just one part of these transactions for the couple. So that's one of the ways in which the feminist movement escapes from some of the problems, if you like, of liberal choice theory, you know, like, okay, oh, she chooses that role. So there can't be any exploitation. They say, no, let's look at the the various basic desires of human beings, you know, autonomy, sociability, creativity, and so on, as uh, three key desires and go, well, let's look at how this is working out in terms of the housewife. And this feminist research, you know, like, in a sense, pioneers this kind of view of inequality and this analysis of it. And an Oakley's study is obviously a, a, a part of the second wave feminist picture of patriarchy. And like there were lots of other studies in looking at other particular aspects, which I'll just mention. These are all looking at rich world contexts, but they're pretty well cross class in the sense that the things I'm about to identify take place across different social classes. They're not just restricted to the middle class or something like that. Feminism in that sense is not just a middle class complaint. For example, there were studies of the situation in working places which talk about how the jobs that women have when they are working, you're doing paid work, mean that they're sort of stuck in the one place all the time. They don't move about the place a lot like the men do in their work. And the men in the work have more authority and they have more status in the working place than the women. So this doesn't matter what sort of class location you're looking at, this sort of stuff's still going on. Other studies by this second wave feminist movement look at sexual pleasure in heterosexual relationships like the height Report. They look at assault and violence in relationship to issues of human nature, such as sexual desire, you know, not getting what you want sexually. Autonomy being, you know, forced to do things you don't want to do. Sociability being, you know, like being assaulted is a massively demeaning and stigmatising event and not to mention physical wellbeing and health and so on, long-term psychological damage, whatever. So, and obviously these things have been brought to the fore recently by the Me Too movement. Power over political life and public decisions. I mean, the fact is that that armies and governments are all controlled by men in almost every case. I mean, this is changing a bit with the feminist movement, but clearly if we're looking at patriarchy as a global phenomenon over time, we'd have to say this is a really typical pattern, which is only now starting to shift a little bit. Like now is the Australian Conservative Party, the Liberal Party starting to think, well, oh, you know what, we, maybe we should have quotas for women in parliament and stuff. Well, bloody well about time. The low status of women, women's position in society in terms of the theory of human nature equates to a, a lack of social pleasure that they're not getting status and appreciation for what they do. These things have less status. You know, like doing the housework has a lot less status than being out there constructing a house, you know, and building a brick wall, or or even tiling a roof, or you know, like, excuse me, okay, um, the, I mean, this is to choose the, the men's positions that are really working class positions, not to even look at the middle class men. There's a whole lot of body language stuff about gender relationships, which you which you start. A, to notice if you've got this kind of critical gaze of, of the feminist movement. One is like, you know, men take up more space. So the key case to a place to look for that is in public transport where men sit with their legs apart, women sit with their legs crossed. Women often put a handbag on their lap. Men are likely to spread out, you know, like this, in the chair and take up space, da-da-da, yeah. And, and some women now just kick them in the shins, very understandable. And... <laughs> and and so and so that's that's an example of body language which conveys power authority so in in a a sense we have a repertoire of bodily behaviors which are, are innate and we use them to express power differences and that's an example of that and that feminists have studied that and they've taken lots of pictures of people and showed how this actually operates in practice. One thing, I, I mean, here's two examples from going out at night. Okay. One thing is if you go out at night to a mixed mixed sex venue, you know, like, you know, a local bar or something like that, and it's after 10 o'clock, you'd be, you'd be lucky to find a, a majority, you know, like an equal number of women there. And, and the women that you do find, like, this is not entirely true, obviously, but, but a lot of the women are in, a lot more of the women are in couples. You'll, you'll find a lot more men by themselves. So in a sense, there's a slight curfew on women. You know, it's not safe to be out after dark, especially not by yourself. It's better, it's safer to be out with a gang of girls and stay with them until you all get home or, you know, or with or with, or with a gang of boys that you know, or with a boyfriend and so on. It's safer. But this is like a curfew on, on in, in terms of body language. What is this saying about women's power and authority in terms of women's, options in society and so on and here's another one okay so looking at a, a romantic couple and they're sitting at a table chatting to each other like okay I mean like seven times out of ten he's raving on like mansplaining not to put too fine a point on it and she's listening attentively and nodding and going mm, you know and it's like you just look at that and you go mm, yeah well there you go okay so that's the end of this particular talk and the next time I'll talk about is 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 an analysis of patriarchy which i've developed in this looking at the first world and and rich countries relevant to other times and places right and also to other cultures that that are not part of the rich metropole of modern global western culture and so on so i'll be doing that in my next podcast so look forward to it okay see you